Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Stephen Elliott, and I'm the author of The Adderall Diaries, a memoir based on the Hans Reiser murder trial in San Francisco, as well as my father's confession to murder in his own unpublished memoir. And I'll be reading from the very opening of the book. My father may have killed a man. It was 1970, the year before I was born. The year the United States invaded Cambodia and the voting age was lowered to 18, he was 35, the same age I am now, living in his parents' house with my mother and one-year-old sister on the north side of Chicago, trying to make it as a writer. They lived across from a park, a large park for a city block, but not a green park. Chicago ran on a system of patronage, with Richard J. Daly, the kingmaker, at the top of the pyramid. It was a crooked town, and proud of it. Someone got paid off with a contract and covered the park in cement, a swing set, and a baseball diamond, turning it into a hard place filled with rocks. The neighborhood was changing. Older residents, mainly immigrants who had arrived following the First World War, were moving to the suburbs. The new people were from Tennessee and other points south. They had less money and more children. They were louder, or at least that's how it seemed, especially to long-time tenants like my dad, who wasn't doing so well financially himself. He was at work on a book about euthanasia and retirement homes, an idea given to him by an editor at a large publishing house. He wrote on the sun porch, constantly distracted by the sound rattling through the screens. It was almost Independence Day, and the explosions had been going off all week. Occasionally, he clenched his teeth and let out a yell that my mother and grandmother ignored. The anger was part of the package. To love my father, you had to accept the outbursts, wait for them to pass, and move on to the next thing. It was something he had been doing since he was a child, when his mother would tell the other siblings not to challenge him. Your brother's nervous, she would say. Anyone who stays with my father over time has come to this basic fact. On the 4th of July, he sat on the front steps with his neighbors, a crippled man and his wife, watching the park, cursing the firecrackers blowing off all around them. The neighbors pointed to a couple of boys right across the street. My father stood in the afternoon sunshine, he wasn't happy with the way his book was going. He wanted to impress the neighbor, and anyway, he'd had enough. It was hot and humid, a concrete swamp. He gave no warning. He grabbed one of the boys, searching his pockets, taking whatever stuff he had. The boy said something smart, and my father smacked him across the mouth. The boy was 13, 14 years old. In the evening, my father walked to the corner drugstore to buy the Sunday paper. It had gotten cooler and he walked slowly past a gang of teenagers, friends of the boy he'd hit earlier. The boys said a few words under their breath, and my father ignored them. Returning through the park, he stopped at the fountain to take a drink. A man called out, Did you hit my kid? The man was drunk, barefoot, striding diagonally across the park. Two men followed behind at a distance, eager to see what would happen. The street lights were on, and the fireflies were blinking. My father didn't run, he just stood there. The man punched my father, and my father didn't fight back. The house was just across the street, but he made no move to run and get up the stairs. He was paralyzed. 
Seeing there was no danger, the two friends joined in. The three men hit my father from all sides, his eyes swelling, his mouth bleeding, but he never went down. He stood, holding his newspaper, getting punched in the face. The men walked away laughing, and for some reason my father followed. They looked back at him and told him to screw off. They didn't want to go home. They didn't want my father to know where they lived. And then a police car pulled to the curb, and the men were arrested. My father pressed charges, but nothing happened. He hired an attorney, and they tried to bribe an official with $500 to get the charges raised to aggravated assault. But their attempt failed in court, and my father lost what little faith he had in the institutions that are supposed to protect us and provide justice. Or maybe it was a faith he never had. He lived in Chicago virtually all his life and knew how the game was played. This was his neighborhood, and he had been humiliated on his own block. His doctor told him he was as close to having a concussion as a man could be without actually having one. He told himself he would never again doubt his ability to take a punch. There are pictures of my father from that summer in 1970. His shirt covered in blood, giant bruises fading from black to purple around his eyes, wearing sunglasses and without. I've seen the pictures, or I remember seeing them. I don't always trust my own memory. He talked about the beating to me, my sister, my uncle. It loomed over him, hovered around his shoulders like a coat he couldn't get out of. He never talked about the rest. My father's writing career never really took off. His hardcovers weren't released in paperback. I got the impression he was too concerned with what editors wanted and how much he was getting paid per hour, which is death for a writer. He told me he didn't believe in rewriting. He penned two pulp novels populated with characters averse to exploring their own motivations. He also wrote pornographic books, some of which he republished under other names. They lined his office shelves with titles like Visiting Ant and Sin Safari. One of his favorite stories involved telling a woman he wrote pornography and her responding, You write pornography? I live pornography. He also published a book-length interview with Al Capone's piano player called My Years with Capone, except it wasn't actually Al Capone's piano player. It was Al Capone's lawyer, and at the last minute, the lawyer backed out. The interview was the best book my father ever did, but it was a lie, like a lot of other things. My father got out of writing and into real estate. When I was eight, my mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, confining her to the living room couch for most of the next five years. She died when I was 13, and I ran away from home a month later. After a year sleeping on the streets, I was taken into custody by the state and spent four years in various state-sponsored institutions. My father made money, married someone with a good job, moved to the suburbs, and had new children. My little brother and sister went to private schools. I was living in a studio next to a transient hotel and across from a chocolate factory. The prison bus stopped down the street, and the crack whores crossed back and forth in front of the factory, breaking into the dumpster after hours and digging out mangled boxes of toffee. That Christmas Eve, a man tried to jump in my window from the building across the echo chamber. He missed and fell three stories to the ground and broke his leg. I had just published my first hardcover novel, A Life Without Consequences, set in the group homes where I spent my adolescence. My father clearly hoped that I would write about him, there was no other explanation for sending me his correspondence. He had three children in Chicago he could have given them to. When I was young, he used to give me books to read about strong, silent men who did the right thing and didn't care what anybody else thought. 
They were criminals and soldiers who never backed down from anything. They were tough and lived according to a simple, unspoken moral code. That's your dad, my father would tell me. According to the memoir, after he was beat up, the children in the neighborhood mocked him, and his friends abandoned him. He felt spooked, unsafe, like he could get made. His masculinity shattered. He moved with my mother and sister to a small furnished rental on the North Shore, where he bought a shotgun and practiced shooting in the woods behind the house. Or he says he did. All I have is what people tell me and what they write down. A year had passed since he was beat up. By then he was done with his euthanasia book and doing work in a rehab, counseling drug addicts and having an affair with one of the junkies, which would cost him his job. He sawed off the barrels of the gun. When he fired toward the trees, there was just a puff of smoke. He bored holes in the gun so he could run a belt through it and bought a raincoat and tried strapping the gun inside the arm, using the belt over his shoulder. He knew the work schedule of the man who had beaten him. His lawyer promised to get the police patrol schedules outside the man's house, but he never did. In his memoir, my father refers to the man as jerk number one and the two men that joined in as jerk number two and jerk number three. He wrote, I set up a checklist of procedures. Unfortunately, wearing the long coat over the sawed-off shotgun was impractical now in the heart of Chicago's warm July summer. Even the mornings were warm. I could still do it, but people would notice it, and it would look peculiar. And the mornings were bright. Jerk number one came out to his station wagon about 7.30 a.m. The sun had already been up quite a while. I'd be visible like nobody's business. Still, it had to be now. As I was leaving the country, then the case would die a natural death. I had a black vinyl hat to wear. I could put on a false beard and mustache and eyeglasses with no glass in them. I was nervous, but determined. Jerk number one was killed one morning while sitting in his car. Apparently, someone got out of a car behind and across the street from his and put both barrels of a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun through the side windows on the driver's side. He finished the section with this strange caveat. If any state's attorney or Chicago policeman is reading this, I am stating categorically that I had nothing to do with Jerk One's death. I suppose he must have had other enemies besides myself. Shortly after that, my parents moved to England, where I was born. I stayed home from work sick as I read through the entire manuscript. His denial was typical, with its hope to take credit and claim innocence at the same time. I didn't doubt he killed that man. It fit everything I thought I knew about my father, driven by pride, anger, and violence, especially pride. The most startling detail was not the murder, but the lack of remorse for the child who grew up without his father as a result of my father's actions. The boy is never again mentioned in the text. I wanted to meet him. I imagined getting to know him, going to bars together and drinking Budweiser, and one day saying, my father killed your father. He would be around 50 now. I looked for information everywhere, but I came up against a dead end. I combed through microfiche of Chicago newspapers from the time. I hired students to help me with research. I went to the neighborhood looking for long-term residents who might remember something. I contacted the Chicago Bar Association, trying to find the attorney who had represented my father, and they told me he was deceased. The University of Michigan did a study on murders committed in Chicago in the 1970s. There was no white man shot with a shotgun 
sitting in his car. I've been holding on to that information for a long time, wondering where it fit. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.